Shalom and welcome to Shalom Ariel and to part two of Sermon 6 on the Book of Leviticus with Messianic leader Jacques-Isaac Gabizon. As many of you have probably heard or seen, every Friday night or Saturday during the daylight hours, Jews will often wish each other a Shabbat Shalom. And even here at the congregation at Beth Ariel, we do the same. That word Shalom is precious when we consider the kind of peace that we have knowing, for example, that the Lord has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. The shalom of knowing that our sins are forgiven and buried gives us renewed strength and hope. And that word shalom, peace, will come up in today's message in the peace offering, also known as the fellowship offering. While that word peace points to reconciliation, it goes a level deeper. It talks about prosperity and a sense of full enjoyment. It reminds us of mercy and grace. God goes beyond just saving us from death. That's the mercy part. And he chooses to dine with us at the same table. That's the grace aspect. It brings to mind Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. He was handicapped, just as we are. And he was the grandson to David's archenemy Saul, just as we once were an enemy of God. But see the kindness and loyalty of David's heart. Because he made an oath with Jonathan, we read these touching words. He, Mephibosheth, always ate at the king's table. Always. That's grace. But how much more kind, how much more generous, more loyal is the Lord in his oath to us that we may dine with him. So let us drink of him spiritually and let the spirit of the Lord within our hearts bring us to rejoice and worship the one who seats us at the best banquet, feasting on the blessings that he caters to us from one meal to the next. Be blessed as you listen into today's program with Messianic leader Jacques Isaac Gabizon and let his shalom rule in your heart. Shalom, shalom. So, See, however, how the Lord, by the way, uses the element of salt, that is when he speaks of the salt of the covenant of your God. What exactly is the salt of the covenant of God? Here, the Lord took this element of cleansing and preservation that was so valued in their society to illustrate his everlasting promises to Israel and to us. There are two passages which explain the nature of God's promises through salt. One has to do with the priestly covenant, and the other has to do with the Davidic covenant. Both, by the way, speak of surety of the coming of Yeshua as a priest and as a king. Let's see these two passages. The first one is found in Numbers 18, 19, speaking to the priesthood in Israel and of their duties and position in the nation. God then speaks to the priest and says, All the offerings of the holy things with the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given you and your sons and your daughters with you a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendant. This was God's promise that the priesthood will never end. For we always need a mediator between God and man. And the eternal priesthood order is called by David and the author of the book of Hebrews, that is, a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. It's all fulfilled in Yeshua. The promise is now in him, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 
to 10, he says, and having been perfected, he, he, Yeshua, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey me, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This letter, by the way, to the Hebrews must have been written just before the destruction of the second temple, when the human priesthood began to fade away and then disappeared completely from Israel. These words in the book of Hebrews directed the worshiper to the new high priest who is the Messiah who is sitting at God's right hand as our priest and mediator. We will soon see, by the way, later on in Leviticus, how very demanding were the laws for the priests in Israel. So much so that the priests were literally in danger of dying if they made a mistake. These things will further show us the great necessity of the Messiah who is the high priest and, and our mediator. This is the point, I believe, of these laws as well. They are a tutor to Yeshua. So the other place where God's covenant of salt is mentioned is in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. This is when the king, the king of Judah, Abiah, argued against the king of Israel, Jeroboam. Right away you see there's something wrong because you're not supposed to have two kings in Israel. Right? It's supposed to be only the king of Judah. This is what he tells him. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David? And to his sons by a covenant of salt. The Davidic covenant and the promise of an eternal king descending from David was understood as a covenant of salt, an element, an eternal covenant, according to God's promise, which will be fulfilled by Yeshua when he comes back as king of kings. So he who is blessed, as Paul said, and holy, sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. And so for the Israelites and for us today, the covenant of salt reminds us of the eternal promises of the priesthood and kingship in Israel and also of our salvation. Our salvation is actually in salt forever and ever. Salt then is a healer, a purifying element, but there is still another aspect to it which speaks to us directly. And this is important. We as believers in Yeshua are salt. Jesus plainly said it in the first century in Jerusalem where the people are very acquainted with the temple sacrifices and with the importance of salt. He said, you are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth. And this is a great responsibility that is given to us. How are we, by the way, salt of the earth? Because we are proclaiming the truth of the Bible. We are the agent of preservation concerning the truthfulness of God. We are the ones who do not only hold on to it, but are proclaiming it to this world. At least, this is what we're supposed to do. Notice what Yeshua says after that. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? So the point is that if salt loses its saltiness, it is because it is no salt at all and was never salt to begin with. Salt does not lose its saltiness. Today, you know, tons of food is being wasted because of expiration date. Have you ever seen an expiration date in a salt box, let's say? On the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua was directly referring to the religious leaders who had the label of salt, but they were not salt. And just before this saying, 
Yeshua gave us the characteristics of the one who is salt. He is the one who is poor in spirit, one who mourns for sin, who is gentle, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He is the one who is merciful and pure in heart. He is the one who always seeks to make peace. Furthermore, he is one who is so different from the world that Jesus says he would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because salt, you know, can be an irritant as well. Salt itself, while a great element is made up of two elements, you know that? Sodium and chlorine. Sodium is an extremely active element found naturally only in combined form. It always links itself to another element. Chlorine, on the other hand, is a poisonous gas. Inhalation of chlorine gas and drinking highly concentrated sources of chlorine, such as household bleach, can lead to vomiting, coma, and even death. It is only when sodium and chlorine are combined that it is preservative and a cleansing element. What can we conclude from this? You know, when we proclaim the word of God, we proclaim truth and love. Love and truth can be sodium and chlorine. Love without truth is, is flighty, right? It, it's something blind, willing to combine with various or any doctrines. On the other hand, truth by itself can be offensive, sometimes even poisonous. Spoken without love, it can turn people away from the gospel. When truth and love are combined in an individual or, or a church, however, then we have what Yeshua calls the salt of the earth. And we're able to preserve and bring on the beauty of our faith then. This is the perfect balance in the life of a believer. There's one more aspect, an eschatological aspect with the salt. Because salt is a preservative, and we are salt. What will happen if you remove the, the salt from this world? What will happen if you remove the believers from this world? It will be like one removes salt from the meat, it will decay. This is what will happen after the rapture, when the believers will be removed, and there will follow the tribulation time, a time handed over to the forces of evil. Like leaven, it will constantly grow wicked until the Messiah comes back with his eternal covenant of salt for the elect. Now, before we leave this chapter, there's another historical connection between salt and the Jews. You know, the word salt in Hebrew is melach, which in Arabic, it's mela. Mela, and the connection is between Jews in the diaspora, in Morocco specifically, and salt itself. Now, did you know that mela became the name given to the Jewish quarters in Morocco? Starting from the 15th century, and especially since the beginning of the 19th century, up to recently, Jewish communities in Morocco were forced to live in Mela district, and in, that is in many Moroccan cities. Similar, by the way, to the ghetto in Europe. Now, these cities were often surrounded by walls with fortified gates. But why were they called Mela? Why were they called salt? Theories abound, but there are a few facts surrounding these cities that can lead us to better understand why such a name was chosen. The Mela, they were often, by the way, situated near the royal palace or residence of the government, and for the reason was in order to protect the Jews from recurring riots. 
But why would the government want to protect the Jews? Apparently, its Jewish inhabitants played a vital role in the local economy. And this is probably why these ghettos were called salt. So the authorities protected them so that the economy would go on. Non-Jews, by the way, could enter the Mela during the day, but at night they closed the gates for all foreigners. This is again another historical fact where we can see how the Lord protected, or still protects, the Jews in the diaspora. My grandfather, who was a rabbi, lived in a Mela. And because the synagogue he officiated was far from the Mela and just a block away from our home, I remember he would spend his Friday night Shabbats in my house so he could walk in the morning to the synagogues. This went on until he moved right next to our home. This is when we enter a powerful passage again, the third chapter of Leviticus, and consider the peace offering. This offering is similar in meaning to the mincha, but it is an animal sacrifice offering which looks like the burnt offering, except, except that the animals is now shared between God on the altar, the priest, and the people. It was a sacrifice of joy and of thanksgiving. This is a sacrifice which was offered during the Feast of Israel, and especially during the three feasts of the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle, where all Jews were summoned to Jerusalem and the Temple to partake to a huge communal meal through the sacrifice of the peace offering. It was a joyful sacrifice. You know, the peace offering variously translated as a fellowship offering, which it was. A communion sacrifice, a sacrifice of well-being. Notice the name of this offering. Zeba Shalamim. The word Shalamim is connected with the word Shalom, peace. And also with the word Shelma, which means complete, which means full. For the peace with God will make us full and ready for all kinds of obstacles. The word shalamim or shalom, peace, indicates not only an absence of conflict and strife, but also a state of wholeness, of completeness and soundness in the believer. This sacrifice was not offered to make peace with God, by the way. This was done in the burnt offering. This sacrifice was to enhance our relationship with God. This offering has much significance for the believer today. It is in this suffering where we can see the origin of the breaking of bread, where people of the same faith sit down and eat together in the presence of God. In fact, the altar was called itself the table of the Lord in Malachi chapter 1-7. This is how it was viewed, the altar of the Lord at the time. And here in Leviticus 3, we have a precious information given. This sacrifice actually happened to be food for God. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Then the priest shall offer up in smoke on the altar as food, and an offering by fire to the Lord. Of course, it's not physical food, for the Lord clearly said in Psalm 50, if you remember verse 12, if I were hungry, he says, I would not even tell you, right? He says, do I eat the flesh of bulls? Or drink the blood of goats, he asks? Of course not. But then why is it called food on the altar? Because this is his joy and great pleasure to see his flock gathering and delighting in his presence. 
And these gatherings were themselves prophetic of, of the time, when we will be with God in eternity. Did you know that in eternity, the only place where we read of a measure of time is in Revelation 22.2. It says, in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, remember, bearing 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit every month. Right? Every month. And the leaves of the trees will be for the communion of the nations. But we will live in eternity beyond time. How is it that we're told that every month we will gather for these great meals and communions and fellowship? And how is the time going to be measured since there would be no sun or moon? In whatever way it would be measured, the point is that God so desires to have fellowship with us that somehow a dimension of time is created so he can be closer and more often with us. Like a father, by the way, who loves his children and his wants his children always with him. The peace offering is prophetic, pointing to these times. And these offerings are food for God. Do you know that in the same way today that the word of God is food for us? As the word is God, right? So being in the word is having that peace offering. Moses and Yeshua said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is in the Word of God where we can meet God and where He speaks to us through the living Word and how true it is that this Word actually is never the same. Every time I read it, it's never the same. What I mean is, how is it that this, this unchanging and eternal Word offers me a believer having been in the Scriptures, by the way, for 46 years, a new perspective, a new message, and often a personal message every time I open it. And it's open for everyone, by the way. You know, when I prepare a study like this one for a week, and every day I read the same chapter over and over, and every time, something new pops up. Because it is written, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Did you notice the five powers of grace of the word? Living, active, sharp, piercing, judging. The word is living. It is sharp because it goes so deep into ourselves. It knows the very depth and needs of our spirit and soul. It helps us to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. It diagnoses the heart and it shows us the state of man, our state. And the word discern, kritikos, you know that word, right? From where we get the word critic. It helps us to part things, to evaluate the world around us. It's like an x-ray device where, where you see the depth of your soul and of the world also. By the way, no other word book that is speaks so boldly of sin and especially of salvation. And so as the word is our food and as we share that food with others in fellowship and as our fellowship and prayers are food for him, the end result is great peace. Great peace. And see how the rules are so precise when it comes to the offering of the altar. Three things are mentioned. Look at verse 4. Two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with 
the kidneys. Okay, these things he shall offer. What? The fat, the kidney, and the liver. Let's look at the fat. The fat is not any fat, but a special kind of fat, the chalev, which is forbidden for consumption, by the way, in Judaism, because of this law. It is the same word used for Abel's sacrifice when he brought the best of, his, of what he owned. This word was used to, to describe the riches of the land, like when it speaks of, of the fat of the land in Genesis 45, referring to the crops, the fruits, and even further. It was also use of what satisfies the soul, like when David was rejoicing in God in Psalm 63, he said, my soul is satisfied as with marrow of fatness, and my mouth offers praises and joyful lips. You know, incidentally, the, the word chelev, kidney, is translated marrow here, while the word fatness, descent in Hebrew, really means riches and abundance. It should have been the other way around in the translation, but it doesn't matter. And see that David answers God's blessing on his soul by what? By offering praises with joyful lips. You know, the author of, of the Hebrews may have drawn from David's words when he wrote in chapter 13, verse 15, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to his name. The sacrifice of praise is not only to sing to God or to pray to God, but also to speak to Him and proclaim all that He's doing in our lives. Now back to the commandment with the fats. We have also the kidney and the liver. Why these two? Could it be that both the liver and the kidney have a cleansing role in the body? Physiologically, the liver and the kidney are the two most crucial organs for maintenance and, you know, regulation in the body. Two organs that cleanses the body. But we cannot be sure that the Israelites knew these things at the time, but we do. We do, and this is another information we can appreciate for every time we read about these two organs in the Bible. We'll remember of a sanctification, which is never-ending. But what did it mean to the Israelite of the time? What could they have understood from the liver and the kidney? The same type of thing as with the fat. Previously, for the burnt offering, they were told to offer the entrails, if you remember, koreb, which we have seen was used as one's inner thoughts. But here, it's more specific. For the word kidney, kilia, in Hebrew, this word is only used 31 times in the Tanakh, as opposed to 250 times for the entrails. And outside the law, it is mainly used to designate the heart, the mind, just like you have it in Psalm 16, verse 7, where David says, my mind instructs me in the night. The, 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 the word for mind in the Hebrew is kidney. Or when he says in Psalm 84, verse 2, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. The word to long is the verb for kidney. The, the verb kala, related to Caleb, and of course, kidneys cannot long, and they cannot instruct you, but what he really means is his, his mind, his heart. And so when the Israelites brought this offering, he himself understood the symbolism behind, especially the kidney. As for the liver, it is more interesting. First, the word in Hebrew is kabeb. Does it sound familiar? 
It should not, because it has no reference or relation with shish kebab, right? <laughs> But like the word kidney, it is used only 14 times and translated as the heart. As when Jeremiah witnessed the destruction of Israel and he said, My spirit is greatly troubled, my heart is sport on this earth. Lamentation 2.11, the word heart is kebab, which is the word for liver. However, this is not all for the priest was not to actually offer the liver. What was it to offer? The lob of the liver. Why the lob and why not the whole liver? It doesn't tell us, but the answer could be found in the word itself and what it also meant for the offerer. Now see the richness of this word. The lob, yoterets, and again, only used about 11 times, and only, by the way, in the law, But see that from this word, other words came out. Like the word yitra, which means preeminent, first. Uh, like in Genesis 49, speaking of Reuben, he would be preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power two times. But there is another word which stems from it, which speaks directly to us. It is the word yeter, which is used to designate the remnant of Israel the remnant of believers. Like in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9, where it is used twice for the remnant. The remnant, it says, of my people will plunder them, that is the enemies, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. When Zephaniah spoke these words, they surely connected the, the prophecy with the lobe offered on the altar for a peace offering. For such will be the remnant of Israel and also the remnant of the visible church, the believers who are the salt of the earth. To conclude, to sum up, through the first sacrifice, The burnt offering, one acknowledges that any approach to God is through a sacrifice, is through blood. And today it is through Yeshua. Both the other offerings, the mincha and the peace offering, were to be offered on top of the burnt offering. And both were offering of thanksgiving. And these things point to the one individual, the Messiah of Israel, for in him is no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. And so he is the perfect sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Let us bow our head in prayer. As a prayer today, I will recite the Kaddish in English. A Kaddish is a term deriving from the Aramaic word Kadosh, meaning holy. It is a prayer of sanctification where God's holiness is proclaimed. May the great name of the Lord be magnified and sanctified in the world which he created according to his will. May his kingdom rule and redemption take seed. May he lead his Messiah into our past during your days and through the life of the whole house of Israel and the life of all believers doing so quickly and soon and let them say amen and may his name be blessed praised made known exalted elevated and honored and may his blessed name of the holy one be above all blessings and hymns and praises and consolation that are given in the world may our prayer be accepted May it bring for us heaven, great peace, help, redemption, abundance, life, fullness, health, consolation, freedom, healing, propagation for you, for us, and for the whole house of all believers. And this we pray in Yeshua's name.
for the congregation, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Shalom Ariel is a daily radio program emphasizing the Jewish perspective of scripture. God is not through dealing with Israel, nor will he renege any of the promises he has made to her. Our teacher for this program, Jacques Isaac Gabizon, is a Messianic Jewish believer and Messianic leader at Beth Ariel Congregation right here in Montreal. If you've been encouraged by the messages, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at one 685 5902 or you may write us at info at Beth Ariel, B-E-T-H, A-R-I-E-L, all one word, dot C-A. You are also welcome to join us for our Saturday morning services. We are located at 6297 Monkland Boulevard, corner of Madison in NDG. The message is given in English, but we do offer a simultaneous translation into French and Russian. Services begin at 11 a.m. We have Shabbat school for children of all ages, up to and including teens. You may also download audio messages from our website at bethariel.ca and enjoy other in-depth teaching from Jacques Isaac. If you would like to sign up for informative newsletters, log on to our website and add your name to our email list. Shalom Ariel is a listener-supported program. If you have it on your heart to donate, it will be a great blessing for the continuing ministry and outreach of Beth Ariel. Thank you and Shalom Shalom.